Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. to have a, a fellow Aberdonian on the podcast I think this is only about the second time oh really who was the, who was the first uh, Little Kicks uh, yeah, yeah of course yeah good friends good friends of ours did you have Stephen on yeah it was good were you do you kind of come up around the same time um, let me think they were maybe a little after us I think we were running in different circles at the time like we very much grew up in like the the alternative kind of punk and like emo and metal and pop punk scene. So maybe they were going the same time as us, but um, as far as I can remember, we didn't play shows with them. Yeah. The path never crossed. Yeah. Yeah. But we, um, so their drummer, Scott, he played in a pop punk band called flight 19 and we did our first ever tour with them when we were 15. Nice. Like we were meant to, yeah, we were meant to do like a full, a full UK tour with them. But I think we actually ended up only playing like three shows. Like we, we drove down for the Glasgow show. And, um, when we arrived for soundcheck, myself and Jordan, we got ID'd and oh. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> then that happened like twice on that tour. And then like Jordan's dad was driving us around and just this little, like this little van. And we got, I mean, we got our first taster of, life on the road and we got to play at like the windmill in Brixton which was awesome yeah that's like a a seminal little venue I don't know if it's I don't know if it's still open I'm not too sure but we got to play there have you guys headlined that? Flight 19 headlined that show and then we since then we had we have headlined uh, the windmill in Brixton but it was a long time ago where about in Aberdeen did you grow up? Or about kind of roughly where are you? As I was in a I was in a place called Manafield. So Ah uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know yeah, where you are. Yeah, so yeah, city, very central. It's like ten minute drive into town. 
so I grew up there, yeah, with, um, yeah, some friends who were super close to me from school. And we all, yeah, we would all find trouble around those parts. Yeah, I was reading about when you were kind of 14, 15, maybe slightly pre-exit, I think. And you, you were kind of in like a, a different incarnation of it. And you kicked everyone out of the band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> were, you, were you always kind of driven from a young age? in that way like that drive to succeed yeah i think i had i definitely had ideas about my station for sure and from a very early age wanting whatever i did to be as great as it possibly could be and if i didn't think it was as great as it possibly could be then yeah i had to cut some people from the team yeah even back then when we were just i mean we were like we were like 14 just playing awful cover versions but I could sense that people in the band weren't taking it as seriously as I was. And I didn't think that was weird at the time that I was striving for more. I don't know, it was just something within me. But yeah, I could I could sense that people had other interests. Of course they did, they were 14. Um, but I was kind of like all in <laughs> from that age. So um, yeah, I ditched everybody and then we, we, were, we had to record a, a song for some sort of compilation but I'd kicked everybody out, so I ended up playing everything on that track myself. <laughs> like, uh, you know, thinking I was some sort of, you know, young Dave Grohl or something, um, playing everything that. And we, I recorded that at um, a studio called Captain Tom's. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's where we used to rehearse. And Tom then went on to release our, like, the excerpts first. EP. Well, the EP that kind of uh, like was quote unquote professionally recorded. Was there anything on that EP that kind of continued to mid onto the first record? Mm. Oh, how old were you when you did that? Uh, we were. That was when we were fifteen. Yeah. All oh, right. We were fifteen then. So it, that, funnily enough, that EP was definitely the start of us shifting sound. Um, that was when we started becoming like. Idlewild and Biffy Clyro obsessives um, and we realised that you know us writing music that sounded like that made it sound like we were from California just made us look really silly so uh, we like yeah once we once we went to see Biffy Clyro live we were like oh we look ridiculous <laughs> uh, I feel yeah. like a, a lot of young bands go down that route though what is it that kind of draws you to that kind of going for that slightly American stylized type thing I d you know, I, I don't know what it is. And like, I, I, I'm still a huge fan of so many American artists and, uh, I, and that scene in general, but I guess maybe like back then it was, it, it was almost like a, like a Skittles packet. Everything was so bright and, uh, the only, yeah, the only thing I can like compare it to is like Sweeties. <laughs> it was, but the other thing is that all that stuff was like, especially during the golden era of pop punk was really, really brilliant. Like the songwriting was fantastic. So I think, you know, they spoke about adolescence and, and teen angst and in a way that was really uh, like digestible for like my age group. So I think, yeah, we just latched onto that. Yeah. It just pulls you in when you're kind of at that age. Did you yeah, see any of those exactly. bands live? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen... Oh, I've seen heaps of them. Oh my God. Um, 
I've seen Blink live numerous times, The Offspring, AFI, Newfound Glory, Finch, Brand New, Taking Back Sunday. Uh, oh my God, the list, the, yeah, the starting line, the list goes on, the list goes on and on. And we've been fortunate enough to tour with some of these bands, which is really, really cool. What image kind of stands out most to you in your mind when you think back to then that, that first Captain Tom's experience, that first, you know, time in the studio? I th- it definitely felt kind of otherworldly to me, especially when we went to record that track. The track is called um, Ripping Away. Um, I still remember it. I, th- I reckon I could still play that, which is wild. <laughs> um, so yeah, it felt. I, I guess it felt like being on board a, a spacecraft or something. It was just, yeah, completely, everything was really alien to me, but really exciting. And the idea of going in with nothing and then coming out with like, recorded song that you had written yourself and recorded yourself it was yeah it was like yeah really exciting I just remember feeling very free in the studio as a kid I was a pretty kind of like it was very much an in-betweener at school I just I, I couldn't quite find my place and then as soon as I discovered music and the culture that comes with it and the shows that were going on in Aberdeen and the people who I met at these shows and hanging out Captain Tom's and stuff, it kind of like, yeah, started to give me a sense of purpose and kind of a realization as to actually who I was and, and that I could fit into the world kind of post-school. What you're speaking there about being a little bit of an in-betweener when you were in school was part of that because of the drive? Because I imagine when you're 14, 15 and you've got these creative ambitions, can that be a little bit isolating? Because there's probably not many people going about who are in the same boat as that and have this kind of drive to succeed and this drive to create things. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Especially, especially at my school, it felt like, you know, people were very driven to do the sensible thing of, of go, you know, they were very driven to have a career and and go to university and, uh, you know, achieve grades in school and whatnot. And I just had completely, completely different plans and ideas and dreams and, and, when myself and Jordan connected in school, it was like, ah, you're com- completely like-minded and you're into the same stuff as me and you seem as driven as me to like want to be a better musician. So yeah, as soon as I, as soon as I clicked with Jordan, that was kind of the, you know, that was it. The, the rest is history. Here we are. Like how, how long have we been a band? So long. So, so long, <laughs> but like I was and initially, I, I didn't really have plans to be a musician at that age. Basically I got diagnosed with Crohn's disease when I was 16 and I thought I was going to either do something uh, with theater or sport. And then basically when I, yeah, when I got diagnosed with Crohn's, they were like, yeah, you can't play sport cause you're going to bruise like a peach. And so it's like, oh, God damn. So I was, I was off school for so, so long and I was so weak. I was very, very anemic at the time as well. And I basically watched MTV2 all day religiously. MTV2 used to have like little rolling facts about the bands whilst the music video was playing. And this video came on and I was like, oh my God, what the hell is this? I'd never heard anything like it. And it was Glassjaw with Cosmopolitan Blood Loss. 
And there was a little fact rolling at the bottom saying they just had to cancel a European tour because Daryl Palumbo was suffering from Crohn's disease. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God. Like, because at the time the, the, the illness is still really, there's not many facts about the illness and there's still a lot uncertain about it and, and treatment and whatnot. So at the time I genuinely thought I was, you know, over dramatic emo 15, 16 year old thinking I'm going to die. And I was like, Oh my God, no, I can, I can, I can do this thing. Look at this guy. He's on my TV screen and this band are from New York. I can definitely, definitely put all my efforts into this one thing. So I think really I, I, I did have this drive from when I was like 14, but it wasn't until I was 15, 16 diagnosed with Crohn's that I was like, right, well, if I can't, if I can't do sport, then I'm going to, I'm going to go all in on music. Does it ever, can it still pose difficulties for you now when you're touring or is it more, is touring more of an easier route as opposed to something like sport, like you say? Is it more of a manageable route with it? Um, it, it isn't, it isn't, it, I haven't had too many flare ups on tour. I'm, I'm pretty good with what I eat. And within the past year, I've like completely changed my diet and that's sorted it out. Basically I'm eating vegan now and it, it seems to be working. So yeah, I'm going <laughs> to keep doing that. But I mean, I had a, I had a flare up on tour maybe, maybe two years ago when we were in Europe with nothing but thieves. And it was, it was hellish. It was, I, I had actually forgotten how bad it can get. And I was just in the back of the van writhing around in pain before we played. It was awful. Absolutely awful. Um, and then also stress is really, really bad for it. So every time we go to make a new record, I have a flare up. And I'm like, why is this happening? It's because I'm just stressed out about trying to make a great record. That must be so difficult in, in life outside that as well, though, because say you're going through a stressful experience, even in your personal life, does that then prompt the Crohn's disease to flare up, which would surely only make you more stressed? And then is that kind of a circle? Yeah, it, it definitely can be. I've, I've kind of like post kind of 2017, I, I kind of had to like rewire my brain to just slow everything down in, in my life and kind of in my head. And, um, yeah, my, my wires got all crossed for a minute and I was just like, yeah, it was just, it was just a really bad time. And, um, I was, I was just super negative and, um, just everything in my head was really messy and chaotic and, yeah, there was definitely flare ups during that time. And then, yeah, like you say, that would cause me more stress. And yeah, it was a bit of a vicious cycle. So yeah, I had to kind of just go to work on myself and uncover some truths and some nasty, ugly truths. And then uh, take a step back and kind of look at myself and and say, you don't need to be doing this. You don't need to, you don't need to be this stressed out. Was that the same period that went on to kind of influence and inform the last record? Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Yeah. Well, the bulk of that record, was that, so was that the same period that you were living in the mansion? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. That's so funny that you, you know the name of it. That's great. 
<laughs> how how would you describe that place? Because I've only heard little bits and bobs about it, but I'm not too familiar with the exact specifics. Yeah. Um, so if it's funny the I feel like the mansion now has a little bit of like mystique about it when if like if everybody saw that place, it's like <laughs> there's no romance there for sure. There's nothing. Um, so basically the mansion was a, was a studio flat. I got, I, I moved into post breakup. I was living with my girlfriend at the time, split up. I had to get out of there. So I moved into this tiny little studio flat. I knew it was a really dingy spot. Like the room looked out onto the back of this really gothic horror movie esque looking graveyard like the, at the back of a church. Um, my next door neighbor, I've like, I felt so sorry for her. She was clearly going through a ton of stuff, but she would like wake up or I, I sorry, I would wake up at 3am hearing her through these paper thin walls screaming. He's not real. Like over and over again. Um, the dude upstairs from me was nocturnal. So when I was going to bed, he was getting up and then he'd blast his television really loud like foxes were constantly shagging in the graveyard, all that kind of stuff, you know, <laughs> um, relentless foxes are relentless. Basically I knew when I went to look at the place that it was bad, but in my head I was, I basically said to myself, I'm not going to rely on my environment to make myself better. I'm just going to rely on me. So I wanted to put myself in a position where I was surrounded by kind of, I don't know, misery. And I thought that if I was surrounded by that stuff, then yeah, I only had myself to kind of will myself to get better and to put myself in a positive state. Um, which is looking back now is kind of fucked up for sure. For sure. I, yeah. Did that work in any way or was that quite a kind of false hypothesis? Mm, it did. I mean, it did work. I, it worked to a certain extent. It definitely did work to a certain extent. Like I got, I got songs out of it for sure. And like, like there's, there's songs on the last record where I can pinpoint, like there's a song on the last record called, uh, we're going to live. And I had this exact kind of epiphany when I was in the mansion, uh, laid on the floor, just bawling my eyes out, staring at the ceiling with my next door neighbor screaming, <laughs> uh, whatever she was screaming at the time. And I was just like, this can't be it. This, this cannot be the end of my story. This just can't be it for me. Um, and so I, I went out that night. I just picked myself up and, and, and just ran. I wasn't in like running gear or anything. I was just, just in my regular clothes, but I just ran for ages, like sprinted for as far as I could basically. And then came home and then started writing We Are Gonna Live. So it definitely definitely fueled the fire somewhat, but it it was also kind of um, pretty kind of gnarly just during that time. And also like, like my shower kind of, the, basically the steam from the shower uncovered that I'd been living there for four months with black mold across the entire wall of the main mm. room, <laughs> like that kind of stuff. Like they had just painted over it, 
before I moved in, that kind of stuff. It was just like, oh man, this is so gnarly. So uh, yeah, I got out of there, but I definitely got some good stories from that time. Yeah. I mean, when, when you were saying there about how the idea of putting yourself in a place where you were only going to have to, you were only going to be able to rely upon yourself to get yourself out of there mentally. When you think, when you look at that from a slightly objective, you think it might work, but then it does also feel like you're maybe putting yourself in an even darker place unnecessarily. Yeah. Which it's, that makes it maybe even harder to get out of. Yeah, for sure. Because I, th- I think what I learned after being in the mansion was that like you do need to lean on people from time to time. You need to lean on love. You need to lean on positivity, like you need to lean on good energy and good people. And you need to do that. And at the time I was just stubborn, st- stubborn and naive in, th- in thinking that I could do it all myself. And I didn't want to put anybody else out because I had, I'd like freaked some people out post breakup. Like I really freaked my parents out and freaked some friends out with like my behavior and kind of stuff I was saying and, and how I looked and just, yeah, it wasn't good. I wasn't looking after myself, wasn't living a good, healthy life. And, um, so I came out of that with this newfound like realization that I need other people at times. Everybody needs people at times to, for help. You know, that's what, that's what friends and family and loved ones are for. So yeah, it gave me this new perspective though. And I, I came out of that time and just, yeah, with like a new sense of lease on life and uh, a sense of gratitude for all my, all my darling friends and my family. Yeah. Is that where the hope in that record comes from? Yeah, for sure. And also, well, yeah, I think to be fair, actually, I think the, the, the light and the hope on that record stems from me living in the mansion, having such a dire time and then getting in the practice room with the boys that felt more like every time I stepped into the practice room to write that I, f- I felt more at home in the studio with the boys than I did when I was actually back home in the mansion. The first few sessions of writing for hold on to your heart were dire. I was, I was breaking down myself and Jordan were fighting a lot. We didn't know which way we wanted to go. It was, it was just really, really messy. I was just carrying a lot of weight into practices. Something just snapped in me and I, we, the first song we wrote for that record was daydream. And that was, that was the first song that sounded hopeful and it had that kind of eighties thing. It was meant to be like a kind of Rick Springfield meets cheap trick kind of vibe. And once we, you know, touched upon that sound, then, you know, the the floodgates opened and we, we wrote that entire record super quick. But I, yeah, I think the, the hope and the light from that record is, is from just feeling really joyous when I was with the boys in the rehearsal space. Cause you know, that's our, that's our safe haven. And, and it was just, I was very happy to be there. And I think it just came out in the music. Did those sessions have a certain intensity about them as well though? Because if you're in quite a fundamentally unhappy place and that's your one escape from it, does that kind of lend them a certain pressure? Um, that maybe, you know, hadn't been there in previous records if, it, if you weren't in such a dark place and using it for such a kind of pivotal means of escape. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it definitely, definitely fueled a fire. That's for sure. 
but I, I, we kind of like started to break away from fear with our writing on that record, which, which was really like really valuable. And we've taken that a step further with the next project that we're going to be doing that should be coming next year. I think the, the boys also knew what I was going through. So they were like super willing as well to like make this. I think they could see that it was helping me like working with them and, and making the record. And I feel like we all felt that it, like maybe halfway through the writing process, it felt like this had to be this like life affirming record um, to kind of, you know, to, so we could get to the end of it and I could say, look at what we just did. Look at the, look at this complete, like look at the wreckage and then look at the magic we made from it. Because to me, like hold on to your heart, the, the record in comparison with reality is, is night and day. Like we could, we could have made a really, really miserable record. It, it would have been just as authentic, but we definitely, yeah, needed to make this, this, this joyous thing just had to, and it came really naturally. So I haven't given it too much thought about kind of how it ended up being so joyous, but, um, but we definitely knew we wanted it to be life affirming and to bring hope to hope to others. We didn't want to bum people out with that record. I was bummed out for too long before that. Did it ever feel natural at any point to write those slightly sadder songs? Did any of them kind of come out in the process, but then you kind of made this conscious decision that no, we're going to do something that's going to be more hopeful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cause yeah, there is only you. The record beforehand was kind of there's there's moments of light in there, but lyrically it's it's pretty it's pretty dark. Um, so we knew we definitely wanted to shift from there, and I wanted to find some light at the end of the tunnel for each track. Even if I was, even if the lyrics did take like a a slightly darker turn, I definitely still wanted there to be light at the end of each song. Yeah, that was definitely like a conscious thing that we wanted it to be more positive. Which of those tracks on that record do you think you were the bravest in lyrically in terms of kind of tackling that darkness head on and expressing it in a way that you could then you could then make hopeful and become life affirming? I'd say maybe the opening track on the dark. It's it's pretty well it's very, very upfront. I mean that song is yeah, it wears its heart on its sleeve and that's why it was it was originally it had been discussed maybe we should put it in the middle of the record to make it almost like feel a bit more kind of Springsteen-y, like throw in a, a piano track midway through. But I thought it was just such a perfect opener because it really, it sets the scene. And, and the lyrics for that song, for the introduction to the album are a lot, a lot darker. So when it kicks in with Daydream and then feels like falling in love and first kiss, it's like the, the point was to have this kind of darker intro. So it, it was it almost felt like it was carrying on from there is only you. So people would hear it and be like, okay, I think we know what's coming. And then, you know, you get hit with daydream and which is, you know, a lot more, it's a much more positive spin on a darker story. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I think it gives those tracks that follow uh, the positivity of them comes with an added weight because you kind of remind people of, you know, where the band were on the last record with that darkness. And then like you say, undo expectations yeah that's right that's right that's but yeah i'm glad you said that because that's 
it's exactly what we hoped the listener would feel. Where did the kind of soundscape of it come from in terms of those 80s influences and the, maybe the kind of slight Tom Petty thing going on a little bit? And I know you've spoken about the John Hughes kind of idea behind it as well. Where did that, mm. when did that start to take shape and come into the process and the idea to mold it in that form? Yeah, so Daydream came without us talking about the 80s thing. But as, as soon as we started playing it, it was like, oh, this this definitely has this kind of like Rick Springfield thing. And then as soon as, as soon as the Rick Springfield influence was mentioned, I started writing songs to 80s movies without the, without the sound on. And so I, there, there's like a whole host of like shitty 80s movies that you can watch on YouTube. And I used to put on, is it Heavenly, The Heavenly Kid? I'm not familiar. Yeah, don't blame me, man. <laughs> it's, it's a piece of shit. Um, but aesthetically, it's like, yeah, it was very, it was, it was nice to write to. And yeah, I'd throw that on. And then obviously I like would put on The Breakfast Club, 16 Candles, uh, Pretty in Pink. Yeah, all, the, all that, all that stuff. And I would... Yeah, just to have it on, just in the background, I'd walk around the, the house with an acoustic guitar and just have it on in the background. I kind of glance at it every so often and see if the, the music would kind of bring out a feeling within me that was suited to the, the scene. So yeah, films were super important for that record because for Hold On To Your Heart, it, it was that was the first record for us where it was like, in the whole thing needs to have an overall feeling like how you feel at the end of a movie. We were quite um, prone to kind of playing friends, new songs and being like, Oh, but this bit, wait for this bit, like this big riff or this chorus drop, you know, it's, it was always about the bit. And I think a lot of people still do that. But for us, hold on to your heart was the first time it was like, we don't want there to be any just cool bits. We want it to be really fluid and for the listener to get to the end of the song and feel, and feel something big, or just feel just, not even big, just feel something. Um, and we really took that influence from from movies, where you know you you watch a you can feel a, a certain way after a particular scene in a movie. You can feel you know you can feel incredibly emotional or happy or sad or scared or anything and that's what I love about movies it's like continuously moving it's just a roller coaster of emotions and yeah I like movies where you you know you're not in one mood for the entire thing so yeah we really took that influence and tried to try to make a soundtrack are there any of the songs then for you that are directly linked to a certain moment in a film like if you were composing them while you had the films playing in the background, is there anyone you think back to that time and writing them that you can directly link to a certain scene, a certain film? Yeah. Um, so the chorus for Feels Like Falling in Love, the original chorus, we actually changed it, but the original chorus was written with the last scene of The Breakfast Club in mind, um, where he punches the, the, you know, that iconic scene where he punches this guy. That's the best scene ever when he's walking across the football field. Um, yeah, the original chorus of Feels Like Falling in Love was written was written to that, but then we completely changed it and tried to, I don't know, we tried to like make like a, 
an emo ACDC chorus. <laughs> you should rescore the Breakfast Club with music from that. Oh record. man, I, it's it's been mentioned before online. <laughs> like a, a few people have said, who do we have to like write to to get the excerpts to write like a a teen movie soundtrack? Because I personally thought Hold On To Your Heart was like, I, we actually joked about it saying it was like the soundtrack to a movie that had never been made. So I would love to do that. Oh my God, that'd be so sick. But um, yeah. Was the 80s thing, was that why you got Gary Clark involved as well? To kind of, because I mean, he just gets those tones spot on when it kind of comes to recapturing the nostalgia for that sort of era. Yeah, oh my God. I could, I could spend this entire time talking about my love for that guy. Um, he's, oh, he's just the best. He is the best. He's like Yoda. He's like, yeah, he's fully, fully Yoda to me. He's otherworldly. He's the best. But no, that, that wasn't actually the reason at all, funnily enough. Cause, so Gary got mentioned to me. He hung out with our manager somewhere and they, and they discussed, discussed me heading up to Gary's studio in Dundee and working with him on something. And it was under the pretense that it was, it may be for something else like writing for other people. But then when I arrived, the, the first thing that we worked on was hold on to your heart, the title track. And I think within like half an hour, I was, I was texting everybody saying like, Oh my God, like this is, I'm, we're definitely right. I'm here to write for the excerpts for sure. And Gary's got to produce this record. Yeah, we had another few sessions and we worked on, so the songs we worked on with Gary, I mean, he worked on everything, but the songs that we actually co-wrote with Gary were Hold On To Your Heart, Show Me Beautiful, and Feels Like Falling In Love. And then he kind of did pre-production on everything else as well. Oh, and First Kiss Feeling, he did that. So I, yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't know a mass amount about Gary before I went there. And then he kind of slowly but surely told me everything. And I, I dug deep on like Danny Wilson stuff after I worked with him. And, and then it all kind of like clocked that, of course, he was going to get all these references because he was, you know, he was in it. He was actually in it. He was a star in the 80s. So, so everything that I was saying to him, all the reference points, he was like, oh, my God, this is fucking exciting this is so great like i love that you're doing this it was really great to get his kind of like input on the 80s stuff as well as everything else he did for that record i mean it's cool that you those songs that you mentioned that you work with him they're kind of the big emotional swells to a certain extent on the album yeah that's that's gary <laughs> he's he is one big emotional swell <laughs> he um yeah He's, he's all about the feeling. Gary's all about the heart and the soul of a song and where it comes from. And it's a deep thing with Gary. So, um, yeah, it makes sense that those ones are the, are the deep cuts we did with him. Where did the, the saxophone and Drive Me Wild come from? Because that's something I would have kind of pinned down to him. Funnily enough, we had the idea to have saxophone on There's Only You. But like I kind of mentioned earlier about the fear thing, we were, we were way too worried to put saxophone on that record because we, I don't know, we were a bunch of dicks and thought like it wasn't cool or something. I don't know, something strange. Just being young and silly. And 
when we wrote Drive Me Wild, instantly we were like, oh, this has to have a, a sax hook. Um, and we got our friend Will from Black Peaks in on that and he killed it. He absolutely killed it with that line. Um, so no, it was actually, it was actually our idea. We had, we'd intended on having sax on that record pretty much from the off. And it, like I said, it had been discussed for there's only you, but it, it made much more sense to, to have it on this one. And I'm, I'm so glad he, yeah, he features twice on the record with it. Cause we got him at the end of cry as well, which was meant to be like a real homage to Springsteen and, and the, to be fair, this the sax on Drive Me Wild was meant to be very, very Springsteen, but ended up being fucking super sexy. <laughs> Is it, I can't imagine there was only you with sax going on it though, because it's it's kind of such a almost like Nirvana kind of almost grungy infused to a certain T- extent. Totally, record. yeah, yeah. Well, that like tonally, that record was meant to be like guitar tones and stuff. We wanted it to sound like if Tom Petty fronted the Smashing Pumpkins. That was the kind of criteria for that. That's a good elevator um, pitch. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, you're right. It, it, like we would have probably sh- we would have probably shoehorned in some saxophone just to do it and have a talking point or something. It, it probably wouldn't have. It probably wouldn't have landed that nicely on the record. So I'm really glad we waited for um, for driving me wild. But it's funny because it drive me wild, that it ended up being a real big talking point when we dropped that song and we didn't think anything of it just because like so much like of the rock and roll that we listen to has saxophone. So it was never really that like, it wasn't that like shocking to us, I guess, but, but I guess following up from There's Only You where it, it was a grungy thing and the aesthetic was quite grungy, I guess it was quite a, I don't know. It did come out of left field a little bit, I guess. Yeah. I think that what you were saying there about there is only you as well, or, or are we well back about how, you know, that maybe there was a certain sense of fear. Yeah. Was part of that, I know that record was a bit of a tough one to make, was part of that because it was maybe a little bit difficult to have a sense of perspective when you're going through such a tough period in the midst of making something and there's kind of so much going on in your head. Yeah, for sure. That was a, that, um, making there is only you was a really like fuzzy or, or bleary or, uh, muddled time for particularly uh, myself and Tom, our drummer, and then kind of midway through recording, Jordan had to leave to drive a band on tour for a week, and so it was just myself and Tom left in the studio, and we were like, no use for one another. Like, it's I wish there was like cameras set up because we were so bummed out, <laughs> like just the two of us just working all day, and then drinking all night and then having to sleep in this like freezing cold RV outside. Or was it, was it an RV? It was some sort of like bullet RV kind of thing. What do you call them? Where'd you make that record? Made it in Oxfordshire at this very rich dude's private studio. Really weird. Really, I remember his name. I don't know if I'm allowed to say his name. Probably not. Um, but yeah, he had his own studio and then like, it was like one day he came in. Oh, every, anybody can Google his fucking name after this. Um, he came in one day <laughs> at like 2 PM, super drunk, like, like wasted. And we were like, what the fuck is going on? And he was like, I'm celebrating. I'm celebrating. I can't tell you why though. I can't tell you why. And then he left. We were like, okay back to the misery recorded a bit more yada 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 he came back in 
with a bottle of champagne and some glasses and started, start dishing up drinks for everyone. And we were like, dude, what is going on? And he was like, oh, I've, I've just bought a uh, Beckingham palace. I've just bought David Beckham's place. So like, what? He was like, yeah, yeah. I've just, I've just bought David Beckham's house. It's like, this is crazy. This is fucking wild. Like we're here so poor and miserable trying to make a record that will change our lives. And this guy's just swanning around telling us he's bought David Beckham's house. It was very strange. Like the, the, the juxtaposition of that was funny. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say the recording environment for that must've been such a juxtaposition of, you know, you're recording this kind of dirty, grungy record in this immaculate private studio. That's kind of high end. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Completely. Uh, It was a funny juxtaposition, but then it was very apt then that we would be shoved into this like RV type. It was like a bullet. It's like a camper van. It's like, it's like a big silver bullet trailer kind of. Oh, the ones that go on the back of cars. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's got got specific name. I can't remember what it's called. Yeah. We were out there with no heating. It was just freezing cold. So it it was very apt that we were staying there away from the house. He's like, three, you know, little emo kids can sleep out there. They'll be fine as long as they don't come anywhere near the house. Was that record still firmly in your mind when you were on to work on Hold On To Your Heart then? When the kind of conversations for it began, was it still kind of there in the back of your mind and how did it kind of infuse what you wanted to do next? Well, it's funny because every time we go to make a new record, the first batch of songs that we write for said record end up sounding like B-sides from the previous release. So we wrote like six songs and we we're like, it just sounds like really, it sounds like a band trying to sound like there's only you. That's what it sounded like. Is there ever any um, hidden gems on you? Like, oh, I wish I kind of had this song when we had the last record rolling around. It would have fitted in, slotted in really nicely here. No, no, definitely not. I feel like if you're the, I feel like if you're an act that are trying to like push forward then you you just can't recreate what you did. It's it's always going to be like a lesser version of itself. So that's maybe one reason as to why we keep changing sounds because it's just like it's it's inauthentic and it and we just can't do it. We just don't have it in us to write songs that you know that we personally deem as good as what we just released. Um so no, every time we go to make a new record, we say we want to do something different. We don't know what that is specifically, but there's usually like a breaking point of us writing really bad songs and going enough <laughs> or like what there'll be a catalyst. There'll be like one song that triggers everything. That's usually how it goes with it. With the newer stuff, it's been slightly different because the process has changed a lot, but um we still kind of had that moment to be fair with new stuff. So, so yeah, we weren't thinking about there's only you for the next thing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's very true what you said and you've never felt like a band to look back, both literally and sonically in the sense that every record feels like a very distinct kind of world of its own. And the same way a band like the Beatles or the Monkeys, you know, each sure. record is kind of like a timestamp and a different kind of genre and, and soundscape about it. How, how was that for you then looking back at, in the cold when we smile last year end of last year was it the kind of 10th anniversary yeah yeah december yeah december 2019 yeah last time we toured man is that a year ago like, yeah fuck holy shit 
That's crazy. We this is the longest amount of time we haven't been on tour for sure. I've just realised that. Wow. But you had so um, many tours, like support tours and stuff, off the back of the last record as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That like, it was great. I mean, the the touring cycle for Hold On to Your Heart was was crazy. It was it was just a crazy, crazy like year and a half for us, where it was just. I mean, we worked super hard. The touring for that was relentless, and then we released an EP at the end of that. Uh, the You Mean Everything EP. Oh no, Wild. Sorry, it's called Wild Heart Dreaming, and we yeah we released that at the end, and we continued touring that um but like yeah we i mean we finished off that entire cycle and the ep cycle opening for busted on the arena on the uk arena tour which was like (laughs) yeah like just fucking fucking nuts like it was the best like seriously so much fun and then we went on to a headline tour um which was, which was, yeah, unreal. But like, we definitely felt a little bit, um, a little bit burnt out by the end of it. So yeah, but the cold winter in December, 2019. Yeah, that was, that was a trip. That was fun though. That was really fun. When you did the reissue for that, did you kind of look back through all the old demos and stuff and all the old photographs? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately we had to listen to (laughs) (laughs) some of the, um, some of the stuff that I'd completely forgotten about. I mean, none of, oh, to be fair, none of it was like awful, awful. The, 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 the main thing about it was we couldn't include a lot of extra tracks because of the actual recordings. Like they were just too, I don't know if anybody would find much joy in listening to some of those demos because they were just so horribly recorded. But yeah, it, it was really, it was really great actually. Like funnily enough, what I was speaking about before the the end of the hold on to your heart campaign, but at the end of that, I I personally I think the boys were too. Like we, it was a, I felt like we were borderline having a, like an identity crisis because we we did the busted tour and we were playing in arenas and like we didn't have to jump around. It was, it was so far removed from like, you know, being, when did we release cold wind when we were like 19 or 20? It was like so far removed from that time. Cause to me, like when we toured cold wind, we were, you know, we were still a total racket. We were just a little Scottish indie punk band kind of thing. Yeah. So here we were on stage at like Wembley and we didn't have to jump around or anything. You know, we just had to sound great. And especially with, an album like hold on to your heart to me that is a widescreen record so i was like oh my god this is how we're meant to sound this is how our band is meant to have always sounded and we're here now oh my god the fucking best band in the world (laughs) and you know blocking out the busted we're headlining and it was like no 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 we're (laughs) this is our show this is our show um yeah we like played a sold out wembley with busted which is like 12 11 12 000 people and then the next night we were headlining a 250 cap room in Leeds and it was like really that, that transition from Wembley to the key club in Leeds was like really, really jarring for me. I was like, Oh my God, now it all feels really claustrophobic again. And it, it, it doesn't sound, 
as bombastic and big as it should. It all sounds way too confined. I feel like we're trying to like break out of these walls and punch through this roof. And that tour, I was just like, couldn't get my, I just couldn't quite find like my bearings because we got to play arena rock band for a bit and then we had to come back and, and be us again. Like the reality of it is, is that we were playing in a 250 room in Leeds, 250 cap room. And I just couldn't gauge like how to act on stage. I was like, ah, shit, what am I doing now? Oh, I have to jump around again. Cause I, I feel like this is more of like a, a punk show, but I'm so now used to just kind of standing still and making sure that everything just sounds great. So yeah, I had a bit of like, um, yeah, just a bit of an identity crisis on that EP tour. I still think those shows were still great, but I, I definitely like just was like, ah, oh, fuck, what is this band? Who are we? Like what aesthetically, what's this about now? And so my point is going back on the cold wind stuff was like really, really beneficial for all of us. And, and especially me to just like look at where we came from. And it was like, Oh, I know what we are. I know what we are. And like that really helped again with like the new record. It really did. And it was, yeah, it was really kind of educational to kind of look back because we're so used to looking forward. But yeah, looking back and at that time was actually really, really beneficial for us. So I'm glad, I'm glad we did it. Yeah, kind of just brought you back to your roots mm. to a certain extent. Yeah, massively, massively and reminded reminded me of like all our like earlier influences and kind of who we were when, when we weren't trying to really impress anyone other than ourselves. It was like, you know, I look back at all those photos and recordings and stuff. And it was just like a very pure time. We were a very pure band at that time. And, and, you know, we hadn't really spent much time on the road or anything. So everything was just amazing at that point. Everything was just wild and fun and, and and like really punk, like very, very punk at the time. So um it was it was good just to look back and be like retrace retrace our steps and and moving forward. It's yeah, like I say, it's definitely helped kind of influence kind of what we're gonna do next in a in a strange way. We've spoken a few times about this progression, you know, from that kind of those raw kind of scrappy, you know, punky band days to the widescreen, 80s infused, hold on to your heart. As you've grown older and you've grown through that and you've kind of lost your naivety a wee bit that maybe you had when you were that younger band, how has that impacted your songwriting? Because like the weight that gives songs like Home vs. Home, you know, on that first record, it's power. And the weight that gives Show Me Beautiful, that it's power. I can't work it out, but it feels like it's, it's coming from a very different place. But they have a, a very distinct yeah. weight, but quite different. Yeah, I think, I think that's like the common thread throughout the records is that for some reason we, we do have this weight and it's like a thread that, yeah, goes through each release. But it's interesting. I'm going to be, I'm probably, maybe we'll talk again when the next, when the next project comes out and I'll speak about it more in depth. But the, the next, so we basically realized at the end of, end of the hold on to your heart touring cycle was, was that we've, we've always had this like, 
we've always done everything and played our music and written everything with like a certain um, kind of tension, not within the the relationship of the band. I mean, there's been tension, of course there has, but like we're, we're family. We're, we're very, very much in love with one another, but there's just, yeah, there's just been this tension and I, I don't know where it's come from. I don't know if it stemmed from starting so young, you know, being 15 and playing in clubs with, with bands in their mid twenties and the crowds being in their mid twenties and us having to like really, really show everybody that we rock and that we're really, you know, we should be there and like we're worth something. And we used to play really like way too fast and way too hard from the off just to be like, uh, you know, there was just this tension, nervous energy within us. And I feel like that's carried through up until now I think we shook it loose a little bit on Hold On To Your Heart, but I can still, I don't think anybody else would be able to hear it, but the three of us, like if we listen to Hold On To Your Heart, I think like there's still moments I can hear it where there's a tension. So that's definitely been a a common theme that just for us personally, that's been there on each release. And yeah, we spoke about it at the end of, at the I think it was April, 2019, we finished up that tour and we spoke about it and we were like, we have to, it's just time to like completely shake it loose, like completely get rid of it. We just don't want it. Don't want it there anymore. It just can't exist anymore. And I don't know if it's like a, if it's a fear thing or a negative thing, or maybe it is a positive thing. I don't know. I don't know. We're going to find out, but yeah, we're definitely, searching for something else without this tension now. Did you all notice that together in sync or did one member of the band kind of pick up on it and then bring it to the group and then you all realised? Um, I, I, I was the first person to voice my thoughts on it and then everybody else agreed. Like, I think whether they had actually like said it out loud before or even thought about it in that exact moment that I said it, they were like, we know, I like they both said, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's interesting that it's it's been there. And we had like, we had some tough times during the Hold On To Your Heart campaign internally with the band. Just a couple of strange rough moments where we were kind of taking one another for granted, I think. And so maybe for them, it kind of, it stemmed from that. But we, I've, myself and Jordan did talk about it having been there since day one. So, so I don't know, but neither one of us can put our finger on it as to why it's, as to why it's there. But like for the, for the next album, like I, th- I think basically I've, I've said a lot or I, sorry, in song, or I, I will be talking about this a lot more with just like, I've had this with, with the music it feels to me like the the whole point of this is I've been trying to like find the answer to a question that I don't actually, but, but I don't actually know what the question is. So it's just this vicious cycle of like, I'm trying to reach this end goal and or like, I'm trying to find the punchline to a joke, but I don't actually know what the joke is. Do you know what I mean? Does that make any sense? Yeah. I've never thought about that before, but I'm, I've kind of just reappropriated it into my own life and I'm thinking about the same thing in the sense that when I'm doing something like this and I'm speaking to bands all the time, 
I don't know why I'm doing it. I just feel driven to do it. And I'm kind of now thinking that you've said that, that I may be in the same position that I'm chasing yeah. something and looking for something, but I have no idea what. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Dude, after this, you should like try and pinpoint some certain moments in your past that relate to that. And I guarantee you so much stuff will like rise to the surface. It's like, it'll freak you out. <laughs> uh, like, yeah, it's, yeah. I had to do it for like our next record and, and this whole, con- you know, because of this conversation that you and I are having about this whole thing, this quest to, yeah, try and catch thin air once I actually kind of put things into perspective and, and thought about this idea and then related it back to moments in my in my past, whether it be in relationships or certain scenarios I find myself in, it's, just, it's, it's, it's quite eye-opening. I wonder if everyone has it when it comes to their own thing. Maybe everyone has their own version of it, something that they're chasing, but they can't work out what it is. It could just be a part of life and that people are working towards figuring out what it is that they need. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I've, I have so many creative friends who... I mean, you have to have a certain sense of fucking madness to do this, like to kind of indulge yourself in creative endeavors, whether it be, you know, conducting interviews with bands or, or writing or painting or making music, anything, acting, anything like there's a certain, like you do have to have a certain thing within you that, um, that drives you to do this thing to like, just punish yourself over and over again in order to try and make sense of like your, your purpose. And so I see it for sure that I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm doing all of this to like, hopefully one day I'm going to look back and this has all been like, um, I keep thinking that maybe this is just, it's going to be a map and it's like, I, I will eventually find peace and I'll look back on the work that we did and be like, this is how me and my best friends brought me to this place of peace. Uh, I hope that happens. That's what I hope happens. We were speaking earlier about how the songs, just to kind of to, to wrap us up about how the songs and on in the cold when we smile, it was like a, you know, like a photo scrapbook and each song was kind of like an individual picture of something from that time. Mm. how does that fit into a song like Aberdeen 1987 for you what does that song mean to you and what is the picture it gives you when you play that song or when you think of it 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 definitely makes me think of being young romantic and reckless that's how I feel when I whenever I, I I don't I don't listen to that song on the recording, but like whenever I play it and really like dig into the lyrics. That's a great name like, for a record. Young, romantic and reckless. <laughs> yeah. Oh shit. I shouldn't have said anything. I could have the next one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That'll be my, um, yeah, that'll be the autobiography for sure. That's great. <laughs> um, oh man, I should write that down really. Oh, it's on the podcast. Somebody else has got that now. You can take it. You can take it. Um, if I ever dig into the lyrics when we're having like a particularly good show and I'm really, really in on the song and I'm feeling every line, then yeah, I'm, I'm straight back to being, 
I mean, it, it, it really does represent my youth and the change from moving from Aberdeen to Brighton. It, it, it really is the soundtrack of that transitional like phase of my life because it references people and places in Aberdeen, but also references people and places in Brighton. Yeah, those stories, funnily enough, I won't go t- too much into it because um, it seems like, you know, that song means a lot to a lot of people and I don't want them to have the facts about it. I want them to interpret it how they want to. But both those scenarios, the scenario I'm singing about in Aberdeen and the scenario I'm singing about in Brighton and the people, it's all like interwoven. At that time, it was all interwoven. And it's just funny that some of these people have never and will never meet, but they're, they're big characters in a, in a song of ours. So yeah, it makes me, it makes me think of that time and yeah, just youth makes me think of my youth and how, how great it was when I was 18 and 19 and being silly and there not being that many consequences because we weren't adults. (laughs) Yeah. What do you, what do you think? Uh, Like, what do you see? when you hear that song out of interest is it a similar thing is it a youthful thing i think so it's an it feels like it's got an affection and a slight nostalgia about it but it's because it's weird because it feels like a song that's kind of looking back and it's being reflective but at the same time there is an innocence about it that makes you feel like you're in your moment i think it kind of that's what what works about it is that it manages to straddle that line between being both reflective and kind of nostalgic, but also very much still feeling like it's in the moment of that period, which is probably why it kind of captures such a specific emotion for people. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I don't know how how I stumbled upon being so nostalgic with the lyrics on that record. I think it just stems from, I don't know, being so like overly indulgent in thinking I'm a romantic kind of thing. Maybe because you moved as well, because suddenly you've put a you've put a marker down in your life. That period of your life in Aberdeen is now over, and you're now starting a period of your life in Brighton. And it's maybe one of those first instances when you suddenly acknowledge that you're kind of solidifying things, and there's certain moments in your life that you'll never be able to live again. Like when you're in yeah, school, it kind sure. of feels like that's going to go on forever, and then it's only when you leave you kind of realise that oh no, that's over, and that's never coming back. You know, and it's a weird feeling. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, I agree with you. It could, yeah, it could have been that. It's it's funny that that song kind of um, captured the ear of so many people because the recording of that song, I, I find it really hard to listen to because it was done in like our friend's bedroom in Brighton and I've got like a rancid cold and it's just, I, I like... I really don't think I, I sound good on that recording at all. I definitely don't. I know for a fact I don't, but I love the fact that like people don't care about that. There's like a real innocence to the recording. It's a testament to the great. songwriting as well. When you, people are kind of just moving past that and just kind of latching onto the emotion of it. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thanks for saying that. Did night school used to be called McLovin? Yeah. How do you know all this stuff? This is like, um, <laughs> this is like, um, Nardwar. Nardwar, yeah. I'm this not like Nardwar. <laughs> How did you know that? Was, is that like a, is that out there? Mm, it was in an interview somewhere. I went through, oh, wow. there's a lot of interviews with you. I think, so I went on actually, I went on YouTube 
and I put in the Exodus interview, arranged them by date, and then scrolled all the way down to the bottom and just went through them. Because there's interviews with you guys from like 2008 and stuff on there. Fuck. Oh, God. <laughs> that sounds hellish. Why was that called McLovin? Or is it the Superbad character? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think... Did we? When does Superbad come out? 2007? Yeah, yeah I mean, we we probably wrote that song in like 2009. So it was still kind of like... Fre- like so actually, to be fair, I'll give credit to... Um, do you remember Flood of Red? Do you remember mm, that that band? No. Yeah. Okay, good friends of ours. They're they're no longer playing or making music, but they they were around the same time as us. They were they were a little more established than us, and they were kind of killing it for a period. They used to like all their demos were just funny names, like of the, like names of their friends or characters from TV shows or movies. Or you know, they were just all named funny funny stuff. I think we took a, took that from them where we started like naming all our demos after our friends or after characters' names and stuff like that. So McLovin, McLovin stuck around for a bit and then I think our management were like, no, there's no way. <laughs> <laughs> but then funnily enough on there is only you, Kevin Costner stuck. So there you go. Kevin Costner is the only one that stuck around. Why was that track called Kevin Costner? Yeah, no other reason than we were like probably talking about him in the studio and how brilliant Kevin Costner is and how like fantastic his movies are. And we were like, okay, cool. This one's called Kevin Costner because we were probably just working on it at the time. Um, And like sometimes, you know, when you're saving stuff, you just have to like quickly come up with a name. Like Erringa would have been like, what's the name of the song? And uh, well, we were just talking about uh, Tin Cup. So call it Kevin Costner. And so that'll be the reason then when it actually comes around to, when it came around to actually calling it something, just like no specific line from the, from the chorus, you know, you usually take the chorus line for the, for the title. There was no like specific line from it that we could use really. Cause like the main hook is if love is warm, then why am I so cold? But that like, that doesn't really flow off the tongue all that nicely. It's not a great song title. So yeah, it's not a great song title. We'll call it Kevin Costner. <laughs> I guess it's yeah. more memorable. Yeah, for sure. I don't think I don't think anybody actually thinks of Kevin Costner when they hear that song. Maybe they do. I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting thought. If you build it, they will come. That's a Kevin Costner quote, isn't it? Is that Field of Dreams? Yeah, it's Field of Dreams. Whoa. That's my dad's favourite. <laughs> it's a bloody good song. Favorite. Yeah, there's so many good Kevin Costner movies, but yeah, he stuck around instead of uh But McLovin didn't. Fine shame. If you build it, they will come kind of an ethos that you could apply to the band because it's been from album to album, it's kind of just been a build, a slow kind of steady build where it garners you know a bigger and bigger fan base each time, kind of culminating and hold on to your heart. How how does that feed into the music and your creativity? with it kind of being that steady incline instead of, you know, exploding on one random album. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it definitely keeps that hunger going to kind of, you know, to get to the next stage. Like for us, I don't know, maybe some people would disagree who are fans of our, like of a particular record of ours. Um, They'd maybe disagree with, 
what I'm about to say in that I feel personally like the fire for us has never, has never gone out. Like we've always had this, yeah, this, this hunger and this, and we've always felt fueled and, and, and driven to try and write the best songs we possibly can and to try new things and experiment. And, um, I think if we had, I don't know, who's to say like, you know, we could have, we could have had a hit record and we could have all got addicted to drugs and blown our money on, you know, cars and other cool shit. Um, and like so many artists that I like and bands that I like, there is a common thread where basically as soon as they become successful, their, their music and creative output isn't as good. Like I've clocked that with so many, so many artists and bands, um, which is totally fair enough. I'd, I'd definitely become complacent if I had a pool and owned a house and had a family and, and all that. But yeah, it's striving to like reach the next, the next stage is definitely something that keeps us, keeps us motivated. And it's also just something that's totally like within us that's unexplainable. And that's like some sort of kind of like magic, this desire within us and this, it's like, yeah, mad burning desire to, to create and to, again, it's this, it's this thing that keeps cropping up, which I've caught this like never ending quest for this unattainable question and answer. It's that, like striving for that has just never diminished or wavered and I'm still like or we are sorry the three of us are still like as fired up as we were when we were 15 playing in in Dr. Drake's (laughs) in Aberdeen trying to impress older people It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.